when a runner was to run a race, he, well, as you know, people wore long flowing garments. And if you're going to be running a race, you needed to be able to roll up those garments so that you were free to run. And the apostle is saying here in verse 13, gird up the loins of your mind. This is a battle for your mind. And he exhorts them here to be sober, hope to the end, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of the Lord Jesus. And so this is a lifelong race. They are to hope to the end for the grace that one day will come. Welcome to Let the Bible Speak. We're turning to the Psalm 4. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. O ye sons of men, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing? Selah. This Psalm 4 is a great contrast in its beginning and its ending. It begins in trouble and ends in peace and sleep. Prayer does this for the Christian. We are a blessed people when we can take our burdens to the Lord in prayer. This is real to the man or woman who has really learned how to pray. The entrance of God's word giveth light. The Holy Spirit gives the light of the Lord to our hearts. The psalmist complains of men pursuing vanity. O ye sons of men, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing? The word vanity here in Hebrew simply means worthless. So much of worldliness is not the immoral or profane, but is just a waste. A waste of time, talent, and effort, and worthless pursuits. Junk food for the body. Junk activities of life. A year or even a month later, and they count for nothing. That new car, well, a great joy at beginning, but its maintenance becomes a burden and makes it a threat to happiness. That new electronic gadget now sits in the bottom drawer, unused and unwanted. God has created us for His glory to enjoy Him. In communion, worship, and good stewardship, we are not to bury our talents. When the Christian seeks to make something of his life, it is to serve God and to do the will of God. So always ask, will this help me in the long term to serve God? Mr. Moody entered into a large audience with a huge backpack on his back and asked, Do you think I could preach as I should with this on my back? He went on to demonstrate that it was filled with harmless things. His point was that many people are cumbered about many harmless things in life. Or is this just wood, hay, and stubble? Let's hear the Apostle Paul on that. According to the grace of God which is given me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay that is led, which is Jesus Christ. 
Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Paul's point was that to build on things that will burn up means that you lose your reward. Will it burn up on the eternal day? Yes, let's learn to put our trust in the Lord, in the one who is eternal, in the gospel that is everlasting, and seek the life that has no end, because to know Jesus Christ is life eternal. And I trust that today you will come and put your trust in the Lord, not in the things of earth, which are but vanity. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. We're moving now to our pulpit ministry at the Free Presbyterian Church on six ugly sins. We're turning to 1 Peter 4. We may only deal with a few of these today, but we'll continue them tomorrow. So stay with us as we turn to our Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 4, six ugly sins that each one of us need to deal with. So tonight I want to do a little bit of a review of the book, firstly, and then of this chapter 4. Now, the summary of the whole book is that it was written with the intention to encourage Christians, many of them new believers, in the fiery trials of persecution. If you look at chapter 1, verse 1, you'll notice that right in the opening statement, Peter gives us to whom and why he is writing to them. He calls them strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And uh, this book, therefore, is to Christians who find themselves as pilgrims. These are people of the diasporia. If you remember when Daniel and Ezekiel were carried off to uh, Babylon, which later became the Persian Empire, and down through the generations, there were Jews who were the diasporia. They didn't really belong to Jerusalem. They were uh, sent out for generation after generation in strange places. Well, now the gospel was reaching them, but it was no easy thing to live the Christian life in these situations. The key verse of the whole book may be chapter 1, verse 13, where Paul Peter says, Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, that seems to be strange language for us. When a runner was to run a race, he, well, as you know, people wore long flowing garments. And if you're going to be running a race, you needed to be able to roll up those garments so that you were free to run. And the apostle is saying here in verse 13, gird up the loins of your mind. This is a battle for your mind. And he exhorts them here to be sober, hope to the end, 
for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of the Lord Jesus. And so this is a lifelong race. They are to hope to the end for the grace that one day will come. Now, if you just skip on down to verse uh, 14 right through to 16, you'll notice that Peter insists that these people live holy. But the Lord says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. There are no excuses here for a worldly life. There are no excuses taken. Well, we might be the exception because of our circumstances. Can we not just blend into society? Can we not just uh, fit into the culture? No, the insistence is that they live holy lives, separate from sin. And that really is the theme of the book. And as men and women seek to live holy, they're going to suffer not as murderers or criminals or bad people, but as Christians. And when we get to chapter 4, as we read tonight, it talks about suffering as a Christian. Chapter 4, 16. If any man suffer as a Christian. Now, that's very different from being just a pure, awkward, cantankerous, evil egomaniac. If you are an arrogant, arrogant, beastly person, and that brings hardship upon you, well, that's your problem. But if because you want to do the will of God, obey the Lord's word, live at peace with all men, as far as lies within you, and to walk the straight and narrow, worship God uh, at home and in public, and if that brings upon your head trials, tribulations, then you're suffering as a Christian. And you do that because you want to live holy. Now, the key principle, if you go on down in chapter 4 to verse 19, is to suffer according to the will of God. There's a lot of suffering in this world that's happening tonight, maybe down in Vegas. A lot of people that take their good money and hard-earned money, and they gamble it all away, and they end up in the poor. They bring hardship upon themselves. They're not suffering according to the will of God. There is, on the other hand, a real source of pressure, strain, loneliness, and what could be called discouragement, because you are bearing reproach for Jesus' sake. It could happen in your family. And if you're the only Christian in your family circle, you know exactly what we're talking about. It could happen in the office. And you're the only one that at lunchtime doesn't go to that uh, lunchroom where there's the filthy talk and the worldly mindset of the other workers in the office. Or maybe you don't go to their parties and they think it's strange. You're the weird person and it brings the cold shoulder. And Peter is talking about these things. Now, we're going to get started tonight on chapter 4, verse 1, where we need to jump right in here. And you will see that verse 1 is a call to arms, a call to arms to fight against the lusts of the flesh. You'll notice 
For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves. Arm yourselves. Peter is calling Christians here to spiritual warfare. And there is a huge list of the lusts of the flesh in this chapter. We're going to see them as the six ugly sins. And you'll find them in any part of Canada you go, whether it's the frozen north, east or west, whether it's on the streets of our cities, whether it's in the corporate offices where there is corruption and ungodliness, you will find these ugly sins, the lusts of the flesh, in our culture, in our country, in our day. And Peter nails them right here as the enemy of the Christian. Now, what are these things? Let's look at verse 3, and you will see the list. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. The will of the Gentiles, that means the will of the heathen, the ungodly. They were ignorant. They were darkened. They were blinded. They did not know God. And we walked with them. We followed their way. We followed their example. We did, acted, entered into the same things. And you'll notice that they are listed for us here when we walked in lasciviousness. Lasciviousness. That word means plain, fast, and loose. It means to abandon all rules of morality. And if you knew the Greek pagan heathen world in which the early church was established, it was a place of great immorality. And even in their worship, this is the, uh, the, most, the greatest enigma. In their so-called religion, there was moral profanity. There was evil vices of the flesh. And they are called here lasciviousness. Now, you can go into the inner cities, and you can go into the homes in Canada, and you will find people living by abandoning morality. We have a uh, trend today where marriage is now looked upon as not necessary, where uh, people have all kinds of partners and all kinds of paradigms, and what God ordained as moral, men abandon so loosely. That's the world we live in today. Then you have the word lusts. Lust is to desire what is forbidden. What God uh, grants and gives as a gift uh, in the marriage bond to desire out beyond the marriage bond, that becomes lust. And in Hebrews 13, it says, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Now, if you just think about your circle of friends and your neighborhood, how much of this lust is abroad in our present world. And we are to arm ourselves against these evils. The next in the list is excess of wine. Excess of wine. Drunkenness. The overuse of wine. 
And I'm sure you've heard the story of the two executives uh, from the Rim Company who were traveling from Toronto to uh, Beijing or Shanghai. And uh, en route, they became so drunk, so obnoxious, so uncontrollable that the flight had to divert here to Vancouver and uh, get them off board. And I heard a report that they were uh, taped with duct tape to the seats to try and control them. We're living in a world today where professional people, people of, of skill and learning, and yet they destroy themselves by this excess of wine. Now, uh, Peter says, we've got to arm ourselves. We've got to equip ourselves against these vices. The next one on the list is revelings, revelings. And again, it simply means to let loose, lie down, rolling in the gutter, figuratively, and perhaps even literally. And those who go into parties and they revel and they uh, get into such a stupor that uh, they are beyond it. Then banquetings. Again, this would refer to drinking bouts, binge drinking and so on, and uh, greed and uh, the total lack of control. And the last one on the list is abominable idolatries, unlawful image worship. Now, that was really a problem in the first century. The Greek deities, the heathen temples, they all had their images that people used. And in every generation, and indeed are ours, where there is so much superstition, you have people and they want their images. They want a God they can hold in their hand, a God that they can see, and it becomes the God of their own imagination. And they want to uh, honor and placate and sometimes even feed their own God. And in Canada today, we have across this nation, temples and places of worship where there are all manner of idols that are uh, to represent deities and so-called gods. And people love them. Indeed, people love them so much they want them in their homes. They want them to be shining under a special light or a case where they can decorate their home with their own little god, their own image. These are abominable. They are illegal and contrary to the will of God. Now, all of these things, the Christian, the one who is now a baptized believer, follower of the Lord Jesus, committed to the cause of Christ, all of these things, they are to be totally done with. And we are to be armed that we do not follow in that way. Now, to rub it in, and Peter knew how to lay it on, as you will see in verse 5, it says, Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? So if you're going to abandon morality, if you're going to follow lust and uh, pursue the way of just abandonment, you're going to give account. And there'll be a day when the wicked, the ungodly, will give answer for how they live. But so will the Christian. And if you go right down to verse 
Um, where are we at here? Verse 17. For the time has come, the judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Peter is really laying it on now. So there he, he itemizes these six evils. He says men are going to give account, but so are we as Christians. And judgment begins at the house of God. Why? Because God wants his people to be a holy people. And throughout history, God wanted Adam and Eve to obey him. They sinned. They were cast out. God wanted Israel to be a special nation that would be peculiar unto him. They fell into idolatry. God sent them into exile until they would learn to turn away from idolatry. God sent a Savior, the Lord Jesus, to save his people, not in their sins, but from their sins. And he gave them the grace of the gospel to have a peculiar people, a special people that would live holy and godly and uprightly and bring glory to the name of the Lord. And we are to be that people. Now, the young Christian needs to be instructed in these things. And you think of someone who comes under the sound of the gospel in the first century, hears Peter or one of the apostles preach, become a Christian, and then, how do I live now? I've got all these issues. My family, my friends, this is the way they live. Peter says, no, you can't live that way anymore. You're now a Christian. And in that verse 3, he says, for the time past of your, our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. That's enough. That's enough. And the born-again, redeemed Christian comes to the conclusion, I have lived that way long enough. I am to now arm myself to live a new life. And this is very closely related, of course, to Paul's treatment of this in Ephesians 6, the Christian armor. And what a, a marvelous piece of literature, taking the Christian as a soldier, and he's to put on the helmet of salvation. He's to be equipped from head to toe that he might stand against the wiles of the devil and doing all to stand. And you and I tonight need to be standing Christians. We need to do what we sang tonight, stand up, stand up for Jesus. We need to be soldiers of the cross. Are we? Are we arming ourselves? Now that brings me to the central truth to arm us for this fight. And here we have to do a little bit of thinking, a little bit of real thought work in verse 1 of chapter 4. The arm or the manner by which we arm ourselves is taken from the death of Christ. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise. So the weapon, the armament that Peter is granting us is what our Lord Jesus did in his death. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Oh, it's a battle of the mind. Did we not learn that in chapter 113? To uh, gird up the loins of our mind. 
And here now is now the exercise of the Christian's mind. What are we to, th to be thinking and dwelling upon? Now, this is actually a very difficult text. If you first read it, you might ponder it and say, the Lord Jesus ceased from sin? The Lord Jesus had to cease from sin? Well, the word really means to rest from sin. It means he came to the point where he finished dealing with sin, atoning for sin, paying for sin. He came to a complete, full, absolute termination of his work. He ceased, he stopped suffering and paying for sin. He made a completion of sin at the cross. Simply put, the battle's over. It's been won. Our Lord Jesus has won the battle. He defeated the devil. He paid the price of all sin. He has satisfied the law, the wrath of God, and there is now no more payment, no more sacrifice, no more suffering to do. And all of this is talking about Christ's death on the cross. Now, chapter 4.1 begins with the word for as much. Now, in my Bible, the way it's let out, the word for as much is in huge print, uppercase letters, and uh, it, it really tells me this goes back to the words of chapter 3. And if you go back to chapter 3.18, you'll notice something. For Christ also hath once suffered for sin. Once. That's the operative key emphasis. Christ suffered once. And in his one death, one atonement, he accomplished everything required to purchase his people, to save his people, and to redeem us for all time. On the cross, we know the Lord Jesus cried out, it is finished. It's over. All is completed. He won the battle. And having won the battle, where is the Lord now? Well, let's go back into chapter 3, verse 21. And at the end of verse 21, it talks about by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. He has won the battle at the cross, defeated death from the tomb. He has ascended to the Father. He's accepted as the conqueror or chief of his people. He's reigning. Arm yourselves, likewise, with this mind. You are listening to Let the Bible Speak, the radio broadcast of the Free Presbyterian Church in Canada. This is Pastor Ian Golliher. If you missed part of today's program or would like to hear it again, you can find it archived by program date on our website. Just go to www.lt 
tbs.ca, CA for Canada. There you can read my blog, find my Bible study notes, audio and video sermons, as well as helpful articles. Or you can go to our podcast on iTunes. We're on the air Sundays at 9.30 a.m. for our full church broadcast, and Monday to Friday, 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. on this station to bring you the gospel from our free Presbyterian church here in Cloverdale. We also invite you to our church services on Sundays, 10.30 and 6 p.m. Through our website, you can listen and view to our online services at 10.30 and 6 p.m. Make it your Sunday worship. Click on the Live Now button on the homepage of our website. Or if you would like to talk with me one-on-one as a pastor, please give me a call. The phone number is 604-897-2040. The mailing address is 187 9058 Avenue, Surrey, BC, V3S1M6. We're located just two blocks north of Number 10 Highway on 188th Street. Our website again is ltbs.ca. You can join us Monday to Friday, 5 a.m., 5 p.m., here on this station as we let the Bible speak. Music